The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 357 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is misgivings about the quality of medical research. Back in October 2013, The Economist news magazine published an article entitled How Science Goes Wrong. And then the article went on to say that a simple idea underpins science. And the idea is that scientists should trust it but verify it. And then it goes on to say that modern scientists in their research are doing too much trusting and not enough verifying. And then it goes on to add that this is to the detriment of the whole of science and of humanity, which means that the article also raises questions about medical research. Medical research for cures of diseases for which no cures exist brings hope for people living with the diseases and for their families and for their family caregivers. Medical research for cures for diseases attracts considerable funding from individual donors, from social activism such as running for the cure, from governments, charities and pharmaceutical companies, and it's widely trusted for its professionalism and it's widely respected for its expertise, which is why our topic, misgivings about the quality of medical research, is so important for family caregivers and their family members. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Chris Christopher Labos. Now, Chris did his medical training at McGill University, Canada, and has received specialist certification that means he's a certified specialist in internal medicine and cardiology. He learned, later earned a master's degree in epidemiology, biostatistics, and occupational health, also from McGill University. He currently does research in genetic factors that contribute to the risk of heart disease. He's presented his research at various national and international conferences, and he's published several peer-reviewed publications in major medical journals. Now, peer review is where a group of scientists or medical researchers um, like Chris and of the same standing of Chris review the work, the article that Chris or somebody else like him has, review, has submitted, and if they like it because it uh, reaches the standards they accept, 
they accept it, recommend it for publication. If they don't think that it reaches the kind of standards they're looking for, they can turn it down. Now, Chris is a regular contributor to the newspaper, the Montreal Gazette, and he often gives presentations about health-related issues, specifically about epidemiological bias in medical research. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. Great. Chris, first question for you. Please tell us more about your life, your career as a physician involved in research, and your experience with family caregiving. Chris? Yep, sure. Happy to. Um, So as you mentioned, I did my medical training at McGill University in Montreal, and that's where I specialized in internal medicine and cardiology. And then after that, I started getting interested in epidemiology and really sort of the research aspects uh, of medicine and to really understand how medical research is done and sort of what are the underpinnings, the statistical underpinnings of how we conduct medical research, how we go looking for, you know, the, the diseases or the, the causes of the various diseases. So uh, this has sort of been occupying me for the past two years or so. I, uh, as you mentioned, I completed a master's degree in, in epidemiology, and I've been conducting research on the genetics of cardiovascular disease. But throughout all that, I've also been trying to maintain my, my clinical practice. And what happened with me, it was rather a little bit of serendipity. There was another cardiologist in Montreal who had gotten quite ill. He actually developed uh, Parkinson's disease and um, at this point was really no longer able to uh, continue with his practice. And uh, he essentially had to retire just because of health issues. And he had uh, sort of hundreds of patients that you know were going to be left orphaned essentially without a physician. And finding a new physician is actually quite difficult. And then quite by serendipity, I was speaking with some of his colleagues and I had just come out of a, uh, of a training program and was available. And they said, would you be willing to step in and, and take over his practice? And, you know, because the timing had worked out perfectly, I, I said, you know, sure. Um, and so whereas most people sort of build up their practices uh, gradually, I sort of had to step into a full practice that was almost fully formed and had to take on these hundreds of patients and get to know them um, almost immediately. So I became sort of very involved in uh, their day-to-day experiences. And this practice is actually rather unique uh, in medicine because I'm a specialist. As you mentioned, I do cardiology, but I'm also sharing the office with two other general practitioners. So I sort of help them in managing their patients in a sort of more extensive and more experienced way. But we're sort of managing them together, and we share the resources, we share the medical documentation. So it's a very um, novel way of practicing medicine, a sort of a group of people working together, which is becoming more and more common, but it certainly hasn't been the norm, especially in the past uh, 50 years or so. Now, and I guess you meet family caregivers from time to time in that practice that you've just described to us. Is that right? Well, that's certainly true because uh, many of my patients are sort of on the elderly side and many of them are very dependent on you know, their children or their grandchildren to sort of help them navigate the, the healthcare system, which can be very daunting, especially if uh, for many of them, English is not their first language um, because they come from, from a uh, immigrant community. So um, I, it's often not just dealing with the patient, but dealing with the whole family uh, as a right. unit. And so that... Uh, causes a new set of dynamics to enter into the picture. 
Right. Now, please highlight for us the role of epidemiology, biostatistics and statistical methods generally in finding medical cures through medical research. In other words, what are they and what do they do, those three things? Chris? Right. So epidemiology, you can almost think of it as the basic science of medicine. So if you want to be a chemist, you have to understand how molecules interact with each other and work together. If you want to be a physicist, you have to understand how atoms and electromagnetism and gravity work together and interplay with each other to lead to various physical phenomena. If you want to do medical research, you have to understand how people and diseases interact with one another. And that's essentially what epidemiology is. It's looking at groups of people, various populations, and trying to understand what are the factors that lead to disease outbreaks. Most people, when they hear epidemiology, they think it has to do with infectious diseases. So they think of Ebola or West Nile virus, and and that's certainly a part of it, and that's where the name comes from. Epidemiology derives from epidemics. But it's actually much broader than that. It really is looking at what is causing diseases in populations. So if you talk about heart disease, now we know. We obviously know that heart disease is caused by high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, uh, obesity, lack of exercise. But to go back 100 years, these were not intuitively obvious to people. So the role of epidemiology is really going in and saying, okay, we have a group of people having heart attacks. What are the factors that are responsible to this? And it really almost is like a little bit of medical detective work because you really have to sift through the data, you have to speak to people, and you have to try to understand what are the things that they are doing in their daily lives that are leading to this disease. And if you do it right, you can come up with some, uh, with what are essentially new discoveries, and you can show that Lung cancer is caused by smoking, not by a virus. I mean, if we go back to the early 1900s, there were some very smart people that really thought that lung cancer was caused by a virus. And it took, I mean, close to 80 years. The first report of smoking and lung cancer was published by Dahl and Hill in 1880, or uh, sort of the, the later part of the 19th century. And the first Surgeon's General Report, Surgeon's General Report only came out in 1960, so it took about eight years of trying to convince people and going through the evidence to prove that, in fact, there is a link between smoking and lung cancer. Right. Uh, Now, Chris, I'm just going to stop you there because of the tyranny of time, because I want to squeeze in the very last question to you, which is, why did you publish your article? And I'll give it its full title. It ain't necessarily so. Why much of the medical literature is wrong? What led you to write that article? Uh, Interestingly enough, it started with a conversation I was having with a colleague of mine. Uh, We were having lunch, and we were talking about, uh, I forget what the exact subject was, we were talking about a recent publication that had been retracted because the study had been published, and uh, someone had said that they had found a new association between X and Y. I actually forget the, the, the details. But we started talking about how it used to be that if you published something, everyone believed it was true. Because if it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, it must be true. And we were making reference to the story of Virginia O'Hanlon, who wrote to the uh, who wrote to the newspaper, and the famous editorial response was, "Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Because if it says it in the sun, it must be so." And we've gotten into a realm of medicine now where it ain't necessarily so. And there are a lot of problems with how the medical literature is being published, and that there are a lot of not quite mistakes, but a lot of reasons why we can't take things at face value the way we used to. And so that conversation really sort of got this idea germinating in my brain. 
And when I was speaking to the editors at Medscape, the website where this was published, they thought it was very interesting. And so we sort of went ahead and published it, and we got actually a very phenomenal response. I think within the first few days, we got about 100 comments on the website, which was quite a, quite a thing for them. So really what it comes to is the tradition um, that the Economist News Magazine talks about, uh, meaning you've got to go back and look and make sure that what's being claimed uh, can be verified, can, can be replicated. That's one of the issues. Yeah, now, I'm not going to discuss that with you at this particular moment because we're coming to the end of this particular segment, but we are going to discuss that later on because it's profoundly important. But what you're saying, and I'm just feeding this back to you, is that you, you and your colleague had reservations about the kind of conclusions that we all jump to when we read uh, a, medical, a medical research article, particularly in a prestigious journal. So we'll take the break now, and then we're going to come back to some of the matters that you've exposed in your article. So let's take the break. This is where I often say this is where we have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Everly. My guest is Dr. Chris uh, Labos, you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. A nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Have you learned how to play the money game? There are all kinds of rules when it comes to money. Should I spend it now or save it for the ultimate rainy day? If I make a tiny mistake now, will it really affect everything in the long term? For the answers, tune in to Cultivate Your Financial Health with Wayne Firebaugh. You'll come away from each show with a better understanding of the rules of money and how it sets up your future. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time with a replay Saturdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. 
and Dr. Chris Labos. Our topic is misgivings about the quality of medical research. Chris, now let's talk about cures, correlations and causes. Uh, in medical research that's searching for a cure for an illness, how much importance is attached to finding the cause of the illness and why is that the importance attached in the way that it is? Chris? Well, I think it's absolutely critical. Actually, it's probably the most important thing we need to do because we need to know where to direct our efforts. So you can't develop a cure until you know what, what the cause is. That's, that's uh, almost the, the first step that we have to go through. And this is important because if we misidentify the cause, we can pour resources into the wrong thing, something that might be useless or maybe even harmful. So if we take the example of lung cancer that I was mentioning before, we had to correctly identify what the cause of lung cancer was, and the cause of lung cancer is smoking. It's not the only cause, but it's the most important cause. And so that led to, from 1960 onwards, a series of laws uh, that put uh, restrictions on the sale of cigarettes and tobacco products. It, put, it curtailed advertising of cigarette products. And what we've seen that because of these efforts over the past 50 years, smoking rates have declined and lung cancer rates have, they've initially plateaued and now are starting to come down a little bit as well. So by identifying the cause correctly, we were able to put in place certain public health policies, laws, and, and other things that were able to help perhaps not develop a cure for lung cancer, but maybe do something that's even better, prevent it from ever uh, starting in the first place. And you can imagine that if we had made a mistake and if we had thought that lung cancer was caused by a virus, as some people did in the early 1900s, we would have poured money into the wrong thing and lung cancer would have continued to increase because people would have continued to smoke. You know, another sort of a beautiful example from history is when you go back to, to the polio epidemic. And uh, there were a lot of people that thought that polio was transmitted through ice cream. Um, and why they thought this is an, is an interesting story, because polio attacks would spike during the summer and ice cream sales spiked during the summer. So people thought that was the link. And it, of course, it's not that polio was caused by a virus and eventually a, the vaccine was developed. But you can see how that if we go down the wrong trail, we waste not just time and money, but we, we don't actually address the correct issue. We don't address the actual thing that we need to address in order to prevent these diseases from, from actually happening. That's a very powerful point. Now, Chris, the next question is, in media dis discussions about medical research, we often hear about research that has demonstrated a correlation. They may not quite use that word, and I'm going to ask you to describe it in a moment, but let's, yeah, let's use it now. Demonstrated a correlation between thing A and illness B. So what is a correlation, and what more must researchers do with a correlation so they can be reasonably certain that thing A is the cause of illness B? Chris? Right. So what a correlation basically means is that if I take a bunch of people with illness B, are they more likely to have thing A? Or the converse, if I take a bunch of people with thing A, are they more likely to have illness B? And sometimes that gives you an idea about cause. So if I took a bunch of people with lung cancer and asked them if they smoked, I would find that if you have lung cancer, you're more likely to be a smoker than the general population. But if I took a bunch of people with lung cancer and asked them if they carried lighters in their pockets, I would find also 
not unexpectedly, that people with lung cancer are more likely to carry lighters in their pockets. But, so it would be correct for me to say that smoking causes lung cancer, but it would be incorrect for me to say that carrying a cigarette lighter in your pocket causes lung cancer. So smoking is the cause, but the carrying of a lighter is simply a correlation. We see it more commonly in this group of people, but it's not the responsible factor. So anytime we do research, what we're really looking at are correlations. We can only establish a cause once we've seen this in multiple groups, and there's a much higher threshold for calling something a cause. Most of the research we do and most of what gets published in, in, in medical journals are showing correlations. Proving a cause is very difficult, and it was, as I mentioned earlier, if you look from when the first publication on smoking and lung cancer happened to when it was actually uh, uh, reported on by the Surgeon General, that was the course of about 80 years. So it took quite a few decades before we could firmly and unequivocally establish that smoking was the lung, was, is the cause of lung cancer. Now, I just want to ask you again, you've already answered this point, but I just want to ask, ask you the question again in a particular way. You're, you said that correlations are really very common in the way medical research is done. Um, and basically, there's a higher standard that's got to be applied to a correlation. So this is a leading question, but I'm actually asking you, to what extent do you think everybody uh, that does research is applying those higher standards, or are we sometimes being told about a correlation which might not have had the higher standard applied to it? What do you think? Um, I think the second scenario is the more common one. I think we get seduced by the idea of an easy correlation. Um, it's very hard to prove causality. I mean, there are many things. You have to prove that there's a temporal relationship there. You have to prove that, obviously, that the cause came before the effect. There has to be biologic plausibility. So if you're going to go around and say something like grapefruit is going to make you more intelligent, um, you know, a few people would sort of have to stop and scratch their heads and be like, well, that doesn't quite make sense based on what we know about human biology. So there's a number of things we have to sort of, uh, a number of different criteria we have to meet. And I think most people look for, if not the easy way out, they look for an easy association. It gets them a quick publication in, in a medical journal. And we say, well, look, we've shown this correlation. Isn't this neat? Let's move on. And I, I, it's becoming increasingly worrisome that we're not applying strong rigorous standards, especially in the media. I mean, medical journals do sort of an okay job at this, although that's sort of iffy. Uh, the media, if something gets published, the media will sort of run with it and, and produce these sort of um, very grandiose headlines that are, you know, are not really supported by the evidence. So, uh, you know, if, if you read the newspaper or especially if you go on the Internet, I mean, sort of every day there seems to be a new medical breakthrough. And that sounds a, a little bit silly because how could there be a new breakthrough every day? So uh, I think we're a little bit too eager to have these breakthroughs, these miracle cures that we don't really give the evidence and the data, the, the scrutiny that it really deserves. Right. Now, what you've just said, um, those limitations relating to correlation and the way perhaps we are uh, a little bit too ready to accept them, how well understood uh, are those limitations? First, by medical researchers themselves, research funding organizations and the media, um, so that um, they are aware, all of those 
people, organizations, um, methods of getting information out, uh, are actually aware that there may be a question um, about the validity of a correlation when we're trying to ascribe to it uh, cause and effect. Chris? Yeah, I think the I think the problem is that well, first of all, m- many people don't have a background in epidemiology and biostatistics, so there can be flaws in the research, and unless you have specific training, you may not be able to identify them. Um, I, I think what we see in the media is often uh, a big problem, as I said before, because. And, and I have some sympathy for them because some of these medical studies are simply impenetrable. So if you're working for a media organization and you get a press release that says researchers out of University X in the States, I'm not going to sort of name a university to get anybody in trouble, but researchers at this university have published a new finding and have shown that strawberries reduce the risk of heart disease. If you're in charge, if you're the editor of a newspaper or you're the producer of a news uh, segment magazine on TV, you're probably going to take that at face value. It was published in a medical journal. It's a reputable group of researchers. You're not able to sort of peer into the depths of the study and say, well, there was actually a problem with how they measured type things, uh, how they measured these things. So I think the the nuts and bolts of how research is done is not very well understood by the majority of the people, and that becomes a problem. Um, I'll give you a story. One of the first, how I actually got into this sort of line of work was I was reading the newspaper one day, and there was this exact study about how strawberries prevent heart disease. And uh, basically, when you work out the numbers and, you know, go into what the study actually said, you basically had to take about 30,000 women and uh, force-feed them strawberries every day for a year to prevent one non-fatal heart attack. And so when I wrote this editorial up, I sent it to the newspaper, and I said, you know, if you, if you put the study that way, would anybody really think that strawberries were an effective way to prevent heart disease? And clearly not, because in, when you put it in that context, it just sounds ridiculous. But that's not how stuff is generally presented to media outlets and to the public in general. So you have to be very careful because if you don't really understand these statistics, you can easily be, be fooled and, and, and fundamentally not really understand what the data actually says. So I, I think that's where the major problem lies. I know we're going to talk about this later on, but I also want to ask you now the question, how much effort is being put into the challenge of getting people to the level of understanding where they can, if I can use it this language, kind of be a bit critical of what it is they're reading in in the sense of uh, wanting to ask some more questions about it before they accept strawberries and heart attacks or whatever it was. Chris, what what's being done? Well, I'm not sure that anything is being done on a concerted effort. I think there's a more and more realization that you can't just publish the the study du jour and sort of accept it at face value. So there's a lot more, I think, skepticism, especially from the media point of view and from the public as well. So um, I, I think there's a, people are a lot more cautious when they hear these new discoveries. And a lot of people have become cynical, unfortunately, and said, sure, sure, but you know, we hear about a new study and a new you know, medical breakthrough every day. So we're not going to get too excited about this sort of stuff anymore. Um, what's, what's also interesting is that a lot of media organizations have also started to get people on their staff that do have an expertise in epidemiology. So 
when I was doing my master's degree, actually, there was uh, somebody um, uh, who was studying with me who was, in fact, a journalist, didn't have a science background, but was taking epidemiology courses only so that she could better understand the field of medical journalism that she was covering. So I think a lot of journalists have started to realize that there is a value in having at least a scientific grounding so that they can understand what's being discussed in these studies. And I think what we're going to see with time is that there's going to have to be a lot more um, uh, scientific accuracy, a lot more scientific acumen brought to the, to the field of medical reporting uh, in general, actually. Right. Now, once again, it's the time to take the break. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Chris Labos. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Adoption changes a family forever. For the adopters as well as the adoptees, there are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Labos. Our topic is misgivings about the quality of medical research. Chris, now let's talk about the timing of findings in medical research, false positive research findings in medical research, and the tradition of verification of research in medical research. 
quite a mouthful. Chris, first of all, in establishing that the correlation between thing A and illness B is telling us that the thing A is or could be the cause of illness B, how and why is the timing important of the onset of illness B relative to the occurrence of thing A? And how do you find out when the occurrence occurred, so to speak? Chris? Right. So timing is, is, is critical um, and for an obvious reason. So let's say we did the study and we showed a correlation between smoking and lung cancer. Now, there's two possibilities. Either smoking causes lung cancer or having lung cancer makes you smoke more. And at the face value, those are equally plausible from the statistical point of view. It, statistics has no real way of differentiating between you know, those two possible scenarios. Now, obviously, smoking causes lung cancer. It's not lung cancer that makes you smoke. And we know that because most people started smoking when they were teenagers and they only developed lung cancer when they were in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. So smoking came first, lung cancer came later. The cause preceded the effect it would be impossible for lung cancer to make you smoke more because you only developed the lung cancer, like I said, decades after you started smoking. So in most situations, it's usually pretty obvious which is the cause and which is the effect. You simply have to look at the, uh, at the amount of time that has elapsed between these two things. But it's not always so obvious. And when you get it wrong, that actually has a specific name in medicine. It's called reverse causality, or it's also referred to sometimes as the protopathic bias. And I'll give you sort of a classic example of when this occurs. There, there's a number of studies, and if you go on any of the medical databases like PubMed, you can actually search for these studies, and they are there. And there's a number of studies published that have shown an association between breastfeeding and stunted growth. Um, particularly in the developing world, women who breastfeed for longer periods of time have uh, children who have stunted growth patterns, and this has been well established. So you could say, hmm, I wonder if breastfeeding leads to stunted growth. But that would actually be the wrong conclusion because what's actually happening is that sicker infants who are sicker for a variety of reasons, either they caught an illness or there was something you know, wrong during the pregnancy, but they're sick for some reason, their mothers tend to breastfeed them for longer and the stunted growth happens regardless. So it, because of the primary illness, they don't grow as much as you know, uh, other children born at the same time. And so to compensate, their, their mothers breastfeed them for longer. So it's not that breastfeeding causes stunted growth. It's that children with stunted growth actually cause their mothers to breastfeed them for, lo for longer periods of time. So there's sort of a reversal here between cause and effect. People, you know, people would, would essentially get it wrong. So the timing there is critical. Uh, another example, just to illustrate the point, is most people have probably heard a lot recently about Alzheimer's and vitamin D disease. There was a study published just uh, at the beginning of uh, 2014 uh, trying to make a link between Alzheimer's disease and vitamin D. And it's a very interesting study, but there's a fundamental problem there. It doesn't necessarily mean that low vitamin D levels lead to Alzheimer's disease. It's equally possible that if you have Alzheimer's disease and you become less mobile and you don't go outside as much, and if you don't go outside as much, you're not exposed to the sun. And if you're not exposed to the sun, you'll have vitamin, low vitamin D levels. So again, it's very possible that it's not low vitamin D leading to Alzheimer's disease. It's equally possible that Alzheimer's disease leads to low vitamin D levels. 
So we have to be careful about this reverse causality because we have to be sure what's coming first. And in many circumstances, it's actually not that clear what came first. Right, right, very clear. Now, I'm switching to false positives. We often hear about a medical test that's been carried out on someone we know and which later turns out to be a false positive. Now, what are false positives and how do these occur in medical research and why are they important? Chris? Right. So a false positive is essentially what what the name sounds like. It's basically a test that occurs which comes back positive, which says you have the disease or there is an association between A and B. But it's actually not true. And so if you go to your doctor and you get a blood test and it says, your doctor says to you, oh, your cholesterol is high, but then you check it again in six weeks and it's normal again. Well, that first test was a false positive. It was essentially wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. Your cholesterol level is fine. It was a fluke. And on that particular day, something went wrong with the, with the machine that checks your blood for cholesterol levels. Something went wrong. We never really know what. It was sort of random chance that played a role, and that test was just wrong. You disregard it because there's nothing wrong with you. In medical research, a false positive means that you generate a study that has a result that is actually not true. So uh, basically, you show an association between uh, factor A and illness B, um, but in fact, there is no association between A and B. And these things can happen for a number of reasons. The more more worrisome reason is that there are people who commit medical fraud. And uh, we've been seeing this a lot more recently. There was a uh, a researcher in Alberta who um, retracted nine studies over the course of 2013, I think. Um, and, And this was quite an issue because, I mean, to get so many studies wrong, and it turned out that there were problems with how the data was handled and, um, there's been a number of cases recently where there was just straight-out medical fraud, and that's very worrisome. So those studies were positive studies, but they were all wrong. There was no real association there. But if we set fraud aside for a second and, and look at how it could actually happen, some, some of these are just statistical flukes. If you do enough tests and do enough number crunching, and, and as we sort of say in the epidemiology, epidemiology community, if you torture the data enough, uh, you will find the statistically significant result just by doing multiple tests. It's sort of like when you watch the news and they talk about a poll in politics where they say, uh, this poll is accurate to within three percentage points 19 times out of 20. Well, that essentially means that every 20th poll can be completely off base just because of random variation and statistical chance. So there's been some interesting examples of this over the years. One of the more famous ones and one of the more amusing ones was uh, if you go back to the original trials between aspirin and heart disease, this was the ISIS-2 trial, which was uh, back in the 1980s, actually. And it was the first study to show that aspirin can prevent death in somebody who's having a heart attack. And this is sort of one of the landmark trials in cardiology. But the researcher there did something very different. To prove the point about how we have to be careful about false positives, he did a specific subgroup analysis. And he said, there is one subgroup of patients in whom aspirin is not effective. And that subgroup of patients were people born under the astrological sign of Gemini and Libra. So clearly, astrological signs are not going to affect whether you survive a heart attack or not. He did that to prove a point that you have to be careful that if you run enough statistical tests, you will generate false positives. And and one estimate by John Ioannidis, who is essentially sort of 
a hero of the epidemiology community, has said that if you look at some statistical modeling uh, frameworks, about one out of every three studies is generating a false positive result. Uh, and that's a little worrisome because it means that a lot of what's being generated out there is really just a consequence of statistical variation. And we have to be you know, fairly cognizant of the fact that we do generate false positives when we do research, and that's why we really need to, to replicate these things. Right. Now, talking about replication, we've already mentioned that in scientific research and therefore medical research, there's this tradition that research results have to be verified by being independently replicated before they can be accepted. Now, how well is this replication tradition established in medical research and is it well enough respected? And if it's not well enough respected, why isn't it? Chris? Yeah. So the problem is, I don't think it's being well enough respected. Um, John Ioannidis, who I mentioned just before, has also looked into this stuff, and he has found that less than half of all studies actually get replicated in any way. His estimate was about 44% based on a review of the literature. So for 56% of studies, they are not being adequately replicated. So we're really not doing a very good job at this. The one exception to that rule is the field of genetics, and I'm not saying that just because I do research in genetics, but genetics actually requires that you replicate your findings in a separate database. So if we wanted to publish something from our North American cohort, we would have to find the collaborator in Europe to see if they can find the same association in their group of patients. So genetics is the one field where that's actually done routinely, and almost nobody or very, very few medical journals would let you publish a new discovery, a new result, unless you've shown that you've replicated it in at least two different cohorts. Um, the problem with replication is that it, it costs money and it, it takes up time. And the structure of academic medicine is not set up to reward thoroughness. It rewards volume. Uh, there's a saying in, in academia it's that you, you, you publish or you perish. Um, so there is a big drive in academic medicine to publish as much as you can. So there's actually a disincentive to try to replicate your results. Um, the, the assumption is that somebody else will try to replicate them, but that's also a less interesting field of research. And then we get into something called publication bias, where medical journals want to publish the new finding. They're not as interested in publishing the replication. So a lot of replications fall by the wayside. And publication bias is turning into a real problem in medicine because we're publishing all these new nifty positive studies, and then nobody's publishing the replications where we find out, oh, well, this wasn't really true in the first place. So that is becoming a real problem in the field of, uh, of academic medicine. So, I mean, this is just, just a comment on what you've just said. So, in other words, that article um, in, the, um, um, in the magazine I was quoting um, really is right in pointing to too trusting and not enough replication. I think that's the message I take away from what you've just been saying. Oh, yes, now, I think that's absolutely correct. Right. Now, it's once again, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Chris Labos. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back.
Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Labos. Our topic is misgiving about the quality of medical research. Chris, now let's talk about what more you would like to do and you would like to see done to improve the quality of medical research. So first of all, starting with you, what more would you like to do to improve the quality of medical research? Chris? Well, I think part of the thing we have to do is make people aware of these problems. Uh, I think the only way to fix a problem is to address it head on. So we can't be afraid of it. We have to acknowledge that there are going to be false positives in research, that there are going to be studies that show association but don't show causality. So we have to be aware of this and we have to be honest about it. And if we can just sort of look at these things honestly and say, okay, we have these problems, we have to be more thorough in how we conduct our research, and we have to address the things that we were mentioning in the last segment. We have to have more replication of studies, and we have to stop looking at replication studies as boring and unsexy, because they're critical. We, they are critical to the scientific process. So there really has to be almost in a much grander scale a whole culture shift where we need to have more replication and we need to have more accountability. So when there are errors that happen, when people, quote-unquote, massage the data to get sort of a more interesting or more sexy result, we have to hold the researchers accountable. We have to hold the institutions accountable. And we just, in general, have to have a more open and more transparent medical community uh, or a medical research community so that, you know, we don't have these 
major errors and major controversies that we've seen and that we don't have to go through the process of publishing something and then retracting it because we've discovered there was a mistake. We have to try to get things right the first time, essentially. Right. Now, that was medical research. People like you doing it. Now, it's the same question, but about others. So what more would you like to see done and by whom would you like it to see done? to see it done to improve the quality of medical research. Chris? I think what I'd like to see is I'd like to see the media take a, a different approach to how they report medical studies. And, and part of the reason why I write for the newspaper and have gotten involved in journalism is because I think the media has to do it differently. So I think the media has to become a lot more skeptical than they currently are. Um, just because they get a press release from a prestigious university doesn't mean the study was done correctly. There are, anyone can make mistakes. These mistakes are actually easy to make, and sometimes they're made unintentionally. So I think medical, uh, uh, you know, medical health reporters need to be, um, like I said before, a lot more skeptical, and they need to really get down into the basic science and the basic statistics and really sort of look at the nuts and bolts of how these studies um, are done. I, I think we need to also be a lot more cognizant of the fact that, you know, a study done in animals doesn't necessarily apply to humans. Uh, a study done in petri dishes in a lab doesn't apply to humans. So unless we can really, uh, you know, establish that this was a well-done study in human beings in North America, we have to realize that a lot of these results that we're getting are just hypothesis generating and maybe not necessarily applicable to us on a day-to-day -day basis. Would you go so far as to say that the culture of medical research needs to be shifted towards replication, validation, and that kind of thing? Would you go that far? I think I would. I think there has to be a change. I mean, it's very interesting because in the field of genetics, everything has to be replicated. And yet again, you get into other fields of medical research and it's not. And that really is just a question of the culture that grew up around medical genetics for a variety of reasons. So I would love to see a much bigger shift in other fields of medical research and all of epidemiology to really demand that, you know, we, every time we come up with a new finding, we should try to replicate it now, not wait for somebody else to replicate it down the future. I mentioned when I was introducing you that you had published a good deal of your articles and research in the medical literature, right. and that what you published is peer-reviewed. Right. I labored through a definition of that. Do you think that peer reviewers for these medical journals have a role to play in what you've been talking about? I, I think so, and I think peer review is better than not having any peer review. But remember, your peers are, are humans as well, and so they can make mistakes just as easily as anybody else. And what's been happening, too, in most medical journals, they'll not only have other physicians reviewing the data, but they'll also have a statistical expert review the data. So some of the bigger journals, like the Annals of Internal Medicine, will have a dedicated statistical reviewer to look over your numbers and make sure that you didn't inadvertently you know, uh, you know, uh, have a false positive or have the reverse causality that we mentioned before. So I think medical journals are also starting to sort of change the way they practice and realize that we need biostatistical experts on the panels now to do the peer review because studies are becoming more complicated, the, the math is becoming more complicated, and many people just simply don't have the background for it. So we're seeing the shift from their end as well to be not necessarily more skeptical, but a lot more thorough in how they do the peer review process.
Right. Now, this is a somewhat different question, and it's the last one, Chris. What's your message for family caregivers who read about a breakthrough in medical research for a serious illness that affects a family member? What's your message for those for the family caregivers and also for the family member? Chris? I think the message is, I mean, always be skeptical of something you read on the Internet. Um, there's a lot of good things on the Internet, but there's also a lot of, of, of rubbish on the Internet. So when you do see something on the Internet or hear about something in the news, uh, speak to your physician or other healthcare provider about it to see what their take is. Be cognizant of the fact that in many circumstances, what you're getting on the Internet or the news or wherever is hype. Um, there is a tendency to sensationalize things. As, as I mentioned earlier, um, there seems to be a new breakthrough every day, uh, which is implausible because breakthroughs can't happen every day. By definition, they have to be something that's, that, that's rare. So, uh, as I said, when you, when you hear these studies, always ask yourself, okay, well, was this in humans or in animals? And remember, animals are different than humans. If we relied solely on animal studies, we would have to outlaw chocolate as being poisonous because it kills dogs, whereas it obviously has no effect on us other than to make us fat. Um, you know, ask yourself, was this a study in humans or was this done in cells in a Petri dish? Okay, so be very skeptical because if you buy into these these headlines too easily, it is going to cultivate a sense of false hope. And there are, unfortunately, many charlatans out there who will try to sell you things that are useless. They'll try to sell you special elixirs and, and supplements and, and uh, all these other products that really have no medical value whatsoever. And they operate and they profit by giving people false hope and by peddling false therapies by sort of over-exaggerating the evidence behind these various claims. So be skeptical, not just for the sake of the purity of science, but it's also going to protect you from buying into these things that, that may potentially be harmful to you. So that's my message. It's be skeptical. Right. To help people who are being skeptical, are there any sources of understandable literature mm. that they can read that will provide that sort of overview, that cautionary view, not, not just criticism for the sake of criticism, but rather here are the things that you should think about, here are the things that the study really found, and here's why you might be a little bit cautious. Are there sources of information like that for family caregivers? Um, I think there are. Um, I, I think you the problem is is that the better the source the more likely it is that you'll have to pay for it in terms oh, yes. of that that's essentially the problem um if it's free you sort of have to be a little bit wary uh, there are free resources out there if you go to the websites of some of the major US hospitals like the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic they have fairly good um, websites that explain various diseases and treatments. Now, they're putting, that, putting them up there for their own self-serving purposes. That's at free, ad, free advertising for them, basically. But they are fairly good. So for like the, the, the average person on the street who wants to learn more about heart disease, if you go to the Mayo Clinic website or, you know, uh, like I said, Cleveland Clinic or any of the other major U.S. centers, you'll get a, a pretty good summary. Um, it'll be a little bit on the basic side, but it'll be pretty good. Um, the, the problem with the other free sites like WebMD and, and many of the other things out there is that the content is not necessarily vetted by experts and it's not necessarily updated. So you have to be a bit careful about trusting it 
too much. Um, some of the better websites are unfortunately, you know, uh, that you, you have to pay for them, and the cost right. ends up being prohibitive for most people. On that point, not of the cost, but on the actual resources that are going to be useful, we're going to have to stop because we've run out of time. But I want to say thank you, Chris, for bringing our attention to something which is profoundly important, and that is what you say, that there are misgivings about medical research. Medical research is still vital, it's still important, and it's a question then for us all, family caregivers, for family doctors, for specialists, to be aware of the limitations and to be able to go to, as you say, the Mayo Clinic or somewhere else, just to check things out, because that's a, a healthy skepticism without being negative. And with all the other things you've been talking about, this makes a very powerful story. So thank you very much for being my guest and being so explicit about these things. Now, I also want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And I want to mention that with Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Qualitative Research to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics such as the one we've just been listening to. Please email me to hear more or to get involved. Our next episode will be Fear of Intimacy and Emotional Closeness. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 